this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. I think you're going to like this next interview with Grant Monroe, who sold his company Flashstock to Shutterstock for a cool $65 million just five years after starting the company. Not a bad little return. There are a few things here to listen for. I want you to listen to the way Grant talks about protecting his equity. He'll give you some tips and tricks around dealing with employees and your cap table and and how to manage through when when employees leave your company, making sure you claw back some of that equity. He has some really interesting negotiation tips that he learned from his advisor, one of which was to really time or try to time acquisition offers so that they sort of create a bit of a traffic jam and uh, you can create some competitive tension. So listen for the way he did that as well. A really sage advisor of his asked him a very simple question. Is this going to be a life-changing event for you, Grant? And... The answer was yes, which for a lot of his other investors, it was not going to be a life-changing event, that it just gave Grant clarity about accepting the offer that was in front of him. So listen to the way he thought through that. There's a ton more in the interview. Enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Grant Monroe. Grant Monroe, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Tell me where you are right now. We were talking offline, but tell folks where, where yeah. physically you are in the world. Uh, I am in this little beautiful pocket called Sutton, Quebec. It's, uh, it's about an hour and a half from Montreal, uh, five or six hours from Toronto. And it's uh, one of the few places that you can ski in the East Coast that, that offers everything from glades to french fries with gravy on it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, one of the benefits of selling your company, a little bit more freedom, flexibility. Love it. Tell me exactly. about Flashstock. What, what, what is this company? What did you guys do? What was the, the sort of essence of the business? Yeah. So, so Flashstock's customer was a big, big brand, a big company that's trying to market their products and services to mostly consumers. And they've got something unique, their product, um, and they're using all the channels that are out there, um, prints, digital TV and more increasingly social media. And so when you're doing that, you've kind of got two parts of of what you do. There's the money that you spend on advertising and then there's the money that you spend to create the content. And so having worked uh, a bunch of time in that industry uh, and seeing how these big companies were creating content, it just didn't seem to be very efficient, didn't seem to be done very well. Um, Historically, they were looking to big traditional creative agencies who were were charging a huge amount of money to create sort of pixel perfect uh, assets for TV uh, and then repurposing those for digital. So it's very slow and very expensive. And on the flip side, you've got stock photography or stock video, which is all pre-shot, pretty generic. And so there was nothing really servicing 
digital companies or, or companies that have a strong digital and social media presence. And so I started a company called Flashstock to, to solve that. And basically we were a software platform where our customers who again were the big, uh, big marketers could connect to a global network of creators all around the world and have content created for them um, that's custom to their specific need. And so if you've got a product or a service that you want to tell that story about, um, our network was able to do that. Uh, and because we were a marketplace and benefited from a lot of uh, network dynamics, scale was a big part of that. And so we could do it for uh, a much faster uh, much lower cost uh, and much faster time frame, And so for someone who had to create a lot of content, uh, who's a consumer brand, uh, it was just a great alternative to, to what existed today or what exists today. So let me make sure I've, I've got it. So if I'm Ford and yeah. I want a, a digital image of a beautiful country road for yeah. an online ad I'm running, I could go to a big, uh, you know, uh, photo shot, like photo, um, what are they called? Photo, they're not, they're like shop, stock photography shop and buy an image. Right? Yeah, you, you could do that, but then you would have to post produce, like Photoshop your car in the image. Right. Oh, I see. So you would yeah. actually, you would actually, they would actually include the, the visual of the car along with this beautiful country road and you'd have someone customized, custom do that. Yeah. So we worked with auto, uh, quite a few auto clients and, and the story would be, we want to tell the story how this particular vehicle enhances someone's life by allowing them to get to a mountain that they wouldn't previously get to. And so we want to tell the story of that person who meets our customer demographic, you know, loading the car up with skis, getting in the car, talking to their friends, looking at a map, driving to the mountain, you know, skiing the hill. So they want to tell that story and uh, they can't do it with stock photography because it's, of course. it doesn't exist. Uh, and so they have to do more of a full production model. And so if you went with a traditional agency that would do that for a television commercial, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if you want to do that for an Instagram post, it's not worth it. The unit economics just don't make sense. So you need something that gets you the same outcome, but is at a much lower cost. So how did they, how did this network of freelancers do it for less? Cause, cause there's a reason a big TV ad would cost yeah. a couple hundred grand. Cause you got to hire all these group of people. They just, we just, they don't have the overhead that, that uh, a traditional agency. And so because we were tech enabled, we could find the models, we could find the photographers, we could find post-production and not be encumbered by physical office space and employment contracts and, and union agreements. Uh, and so we offered much more flexibility and freedom. And, and the content was, was geared towards more of a social media digital use. So it doesn't need to be, um, pixel precise, uh, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of trade-offs with that, uh, but it, it fills the need and, and, and basically fills that content bucket. Got it. Got it. I'm familiar with, with a site called Upwork and Fiverr. Would these yep. be similar, but obviously you had a very unique niche, but similar in, in business model. Yeah. Similar in the sense that, you know, I, I need a service, go out and get that service and make it as, as simple and seamless as possible. very, very much so. And in, in the content crit, space. There's a lot of nuance in content because there's the, the visual identity, the look and feel that you, we had to suss out, but it's, yeah, generally the same premise. How did you make money? Um, so we would, we would charge our clients for the content, the end product, and then we would pay the, the freelancers and then we'd take a margin uh, from that. How did you guys come up with what to charge? Like in our Ford example, as like auto car example, uh, I want an image of a beautiful ski hill and I want a roof yeah. rack and the skis and all that jazz. How would you, 
how did you, how'd you figure out what to charge for something like that? Well, I mean, it was, it was interesting because so my background is in product and part of, part of product is trying to understand if there's a real urgent need and then building a solution around that need. And so, because it's not like these companies were not doing this before they were doing it and they were spending money in it and they were trying to make it better. We had a, uh, we basically had a, uh, an anchor in terms of what the, the current spend was. And so we could work backwards from there to try to determine how much saving is required for this to become a really tangible solution for them. And so we found our sweet spot uh, through a bit of test and learn. And then you have to balance that with paying the creative people uh, as equitably as possible. Um, I think creative is, a, is an underappreciated space. And so we wanted to make sure that we were compensating them favorably. And so we were really playing against those two dynamics, but the key for us and the key for any pricing discussion was really trying to understand what your customer is currently doing and how much time or money they're investing to do it currently, why they're dissatisfied and translating that into a pricing structure that makes sense for them. And how did you get them to, to reveal that to you? Cause that, that would be in some cases held close to the vest and not wanting to share it. Yeah. I mean, the agency world is a, is, is, is a small world. So you can understand the rate cards and there's a lot, there's generally a lot of dis. It seems like there's a generally a lot of dissatisfaction with agencies. And so you, you get these anecdotes and you put them together and you can quickly on the back of the, on the back of the napkin, get a range in terms of what the, what they spend. Yeah. And, and the big conundrum for anyone creating an, uh, kind of a marketplace is like, in, in particular, two-sided marketplace is how do you get both sides to play, yep. right? Because the creative people need to have clients in order to yep. really kind of care. Clients need to know there's enough creative people. So how did you guys solve that problem? Yeah, we were unique. So uh, we were unique in the sense that we were servicing so that we weren't consumer, we were B2B. And so we were a B2B marketplace. And so the the, the trick for us was figuring out like who had the power in that relationship. And so again, we're dealing with freelance photographers, videographers, uh, animators, and enterprise clients. And so when, if you're a freelancer who sells a creative service like photography, you probably have an abundance of time unless you're, you're, you're fully booked and you would gladly take work. And so if we're able to provide you with guaranteed work relative to your, to your skill, we, we, the hypothesis was we'd have no problem filling that. So basically if we could get the job, the hard part was getting the client. Once we get the client, we can, we can get the network. And so we, we very much started customer acquisition first. And so let us fill the demand side. And then once we've got the demand backfill the supply. Got it. Got yeah. it. That's helpful. How did you finance a business? Sounds expensive. Don't know why, because it's all yeah. the technology and the platform. Um, so we were a technology startup, so there, there were some upfront costs. So we, we, uh, I raised some, uh, angel funds from some friends and family, small amounts just to get the product off, off the ground, but then didn't raise any institutional money. And so basically whenever we sold, we, we were trying to sell annual agreements. And so we would say to a client, you know, Hey, you're going to do this many campaigns this year. You're going to need this much content we'll put a package for you that's going to cover 12 months and it'll cost you this much. Uh, and if you agree, you pay us upfront and then we'll, um, we'll use that money to make sure that you get the content over that agreement period. And so we were able to do that. And that allowed us to basically take that upfront booking uh, and collect it within 60 days and then put that capital towards growing the business. And so we were able to get that sort of flywheel going where we have a great sales month. We use those proceeds to, to hire and, and, and fund the business and then continue to sell. 
Yeah. That's which awesome. is, which is, is a really interesting in context of the, this, this show in particular is not going out and raising a bunch of money and, and, and getting that valuation at a certain, certain size prematurely um, is, is really important not to do that. And, and because we, we raised very little money and self-funded and bootstrapped the rest, we, we had so many options um, because, you know, it, we were always in the black from that perspective. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and, and I'd be curious to know how you got, in particular, there are some brands that are notorious for, for stringing out suppliers in the advertising space. Like I'm aware of all the, the beer and liquor companies, yeah. for example, are renowned, infamous yep. for stringing out their, their suppliers 90, 120 days. How did you get brands to yeah. get you to pay up front? What was the secret there? Well, okay. So the, it's interesting. There's, there's, two parts to that. There's, can you get these brands to sign a contract for a large dollar amount um, on their, on their standardized payment terms with an unknown startup is like, that's, that's problem. Number one is, is getting them over that hump. And here, if, if the problem is, is urgent enough and your solution is compelling enough, you should be able to do that. Like there, there's, a, it's interesting. There's a lot of sort of thought leadership on, you know, sh- startups should give their product away for free. And that's the best way to get in, the, in, into the, get your foot in the door. But in reality, it's not because if, if your startup isn't solving a problem that a customer is willing to pay for, you're going to find that out pretty soon. So it's better <laughs> to find that out uh, sooner rather than later. The actual, the trick is on the collection side and you say 90 to 120 days, those were great terms. Like a lot of these big um, CPGs that are now private equity run, you know, 260 days payable terms, but that's after you've been set up as a vendor and after you followed up. So if it is 30 days, it's actually 60 days because of all that other stuff that, that comes into, comes into play. Yeah. As a startup, you can always play the empathy card and say, you got to help me here. Uh, and I'd say, I'd say 90% of the, of the clients we worked with were, were, were supportive from that perspective, but working capital and managing that and making sure that you're following up and collecting your receivables is super important. Super, super important. I think that's something that's overlooked. And I guess in your case, it helped not to have a direct competitor that they could point to and say like, these guys are willing to do it for 120 days. Why don't, yeah, is I mean, it, it, we, we, we sort of had to pick our customer segment with that in mind as well. Like, for mm. example, um, if you think of the agency, agencies wouldn't pay us until they got paid. And so if their client is a, a big CPG that's, that's private equity backed with 260-day payable terms, they're not going to pay us. They're going to have their, the agency will have their own payment terms on top of that. So we'll wait, <laughs> take 260 days, then 90, like it, it gets a little ridiculous. And so we had yeah. to pick consideration. But I would say, because we hadn't raised capital and we needed that money to grow and, and pay people's salaries, it forced you to be very diligent about that stuff, which benefits you down the road. Whereas I think if you're a little, a little lackadaisical about it, it'll, it'll hit you later on, but we were forced to solve it and forced to be very regimented around it, which benefited us through the acquisition as well. And to be clear, are, you, are your customers the agencies of these brands? Or are you going direct no, to the brands themselves? We go directly to the brands themselves. Got it. Got it. And who's the, in some ways we were, we were competitive to the agency. I would think Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. But not, not, not all the time. Mm. And and who's the, we like who, who owned the company? Um, So I, I founded it uh, and I had another co-founder that departed uh, a few months in. And then, you know, I, I was always under the belief that, you know, sharing the ownership across the, the early team was super important. And so the we was really that founding team and, and the early employees that helped guide us. 
how did you reconcile when, when early employees left, for example, your, your co-founder, um, how did you deal with, you know, they, they, they create, they, they'd help to create some value, but they were leaving and, and that, yeah. and that they would, you know, serve to participate in, in the business going forward. Did, did you buy back their shares or how did you kind of stick out all that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think if you were, you know, doing it again, you, you want to set up, you want to set up terms where people are being rewarded for their effort, but if they do leave, they're not taking a disproportionate amount of money. And I think even at the founder level, sort of doing it again, you you want to set up a scenario where if someone leaves within, you know, four years, you know, they're, they're losing a, a percentage of, of what they've got. Uh, and so basically setting up that waterfall vesting for all different share classes, I think is super important. And so that's, that's pretty standard in the industry where, you know, you get an allotment of, of equity and then that vests over a one, two, three, four, five year period. And there's new opportunities, you know, that, that, that works as an incentive for both the employee, but also um, kicks back some of the shares to, uh, for people who have left back to the company. So that's actually an interesting, it always confused me when people, investors or potential acquirers would ask me, ask to see the cap table. I always thought it was a peculiar question because it seemed like, well, what does that have to do with anything? But it sort of shows where the ownership sits, where the alignment is and making sure everyone's assented appropriately. And it's something that you have to be really thoughtful and managing is, is your cap table and how you think about you know, giving people allocations of shares and what your future team will look like, what your key hires will be and you know, what the market rate is for that. Um, it's definitely a, something that was a big learning curve for me. What, what advice would you give to a new founder who is going through this for the first time? Let's say he or she owns 100% of the company and they're thinking, okay, I really want to grow this. Uh, you know, I know I'm going to have to give up a little bit of equity along the way. It sounds like one piece of, of advice is to make sure you have sort of some, some sort of clawback clause that if and when they leave, uh, you know, you're, you're getting those shares back or at least a portion of them. Yeah. What other advice would you give? Kind of really tactical stuff. Yeah, I, th I think thinking about, what your management team looks like today and reconcile that against what you want, the type of company you want to be in the future, be it sort of two, three, five years. And then what that management team will look like then or need to look like then. And what are some of the key hires that you're going to make and understand sort of what the expectations of those key hires would be at that level in joining a company of that size, just to give you a framework of what your cap table would really need to look like. So for example, you know, if you and, a, and your friend started a company that, you know, made it to a, a million ARR and, and, you know, he's the Annual only recurring revenue. Yeah. And he's the only technology person. And you know that you're going to, you're going to want to hire a, a, a more traditional CTO and that CTO is joining an early stage company and, and you want them to be a certain level of experience. Like, you, you know, that you're going to have to give that person three to 5% of the company for them to take that risk. And if you're not thinking about that, when you're making your decisions about allocations, it's going to bite you. And it's not a, it's not an unsolvable problem, but it's a lot of work if you haven't been thoughtful about it. And so that's advice. Number one is make sure you're thinking in more of a longer term and what that team looks like and what the allocations will need to be. And then second is just, you know, protecting yourself and the company in terms of how you paper that and making sure that, um, you know, if the person leaves and doesn't meet the requirements that, that they're not taking all those shares with them and setting up the appropriate waterfalls, investing schedules that are equitable on both sides of the table is, is also super important. And, uh, sorry, one more. Add, and the only other thing I add to that is like setting expectations up in the, right from the beginning. Like don't, 
don't don't pull people along with a promise of shares and promise of equity. It, it's it's really easy to do that, and it, it's a really slippery slope to go down. If you if you say to someone, "Hey, join my company, and you will get shares at some point in the future," you have to give that to them right away and make it clear exactly what they're going to get. Because if there's any gray, it causes a huge headache down the road. Got it. Got it. Okay. That's super helpful. So let's move ahead now to the, the actual acquisition by Shutterstock. So, um, well, first of all, I mean, the growth was just stunning, right? We're, yeah. we're talking about the early days and, and, and sort of getting it off the ground. When did you start the business? So I, I started the business officially in uh, back half of 2013. Wow. Um, and signed our first client early 2014, ended the year 2014, about five people, including myself, um, continued to grow, ended the year 2015 with about 15 people. And then in 2016, we grew to 80. And then at the time of acquisition, we were around 110. So we, we yeah, we did experience massive growth in, in and around the back half of 15 and 2016. What fueled uh, all that growth? I'd love to say it was my strategic ability, but it wasn't. It was um, this little thing called Instagram came online and it, it, you know, similar to Facebook, it had a massive presence before brands could actually really spend any money on there. And so we had this beautiful scenario where kind of at the back half of 2015, every brand wanted to be on Instagram, but they couldn't buy ads. There was no way to monetize it. And so the content that they could put out there was all stuff that was reused. It had to be as low cost as possible because it wasn't being promoted and you, you never really knew who was going to see it. And so because we were positioning ourselves as a lower cost provider, it just created a huge amount of demand for us. And then when Instagram finally turned on the monetization, which is I'm a, as a brand, I can buy advertising and target it to an audience on this platform. It upped the game in terms of the, the, the quality of the content, which really continued to fuel our business. And so that trajectory was driven a, a lot by that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. And you were there to, to sort of capture that and, and, and capitalize on it. At what point did you realize that that maybe the time was right to sell. Was there a trigger that, that? So it was interesting. So as I mentioned, took very little early capital uh, from an angel network. So uh, didn't have a lot of funds to play with. And, and there were some real advantages to that, but there was also some disadvantages. And as I mentioned, we were funding the business you basically using the the bookings, the cash receipts from the previous quarter to pay for the business for, for the future quarter. And it's perfect when it works, but when it doesn't work, it can get a little slippery. And because we were a sales driven organization in the sense that this wasn't all inbound and we were just closing deals on the phone, we had to actively go out and seek clients and explain our value proposition. There was some ups and downs and we had to think about the balance sheet where when you've got a hundred people on staff and you've got that, that payroll coming out, if you have a bad month, a bad quarter on the sales side, even if it's just short term, it could create some real problems and added a, a, a tremendous amount of risk. And so at the end of 16, we had been growing like crazy. You know, the, the, the bank was filling up with cash. We didn't really know what to do with it, but it still wasn't enough to give us six months, nine months of really comfortable runway and thought it would be prudent to go out and look for other forms of financing, be it um, bank loans, be it line of credit against our accounts receivable. And of course, being in the technology space, uh, angel investing. So it was really a function of Hey, we got to do something here. Let's let's go out and get a lay of the land. That really started to get the wheels wheels turning in terms of what to do next. 
What was that like for you personally as the, as the primary shareholder, owner, founder, CEO, <laughs> fill in the blank, uh, to be carrying the weight of that, yeah, that uh, burden? It was tremendously stressful. Um, and it be, the way we have structured the company is we, we wanted to grow. So growth was important for everyone that was in the company. Um, so we were constantly pushing the sales organization to sell more, sell faster, bigger deals, shorter sales cycles. And we, we started to basically live on this month to month cadence where we would set pretty aggressive sales targets and achieve them or not achieve them. And so the pressure that would build up throughout the organization, including me and, and the people that were running the, those functions was really, really high. And so, so that absolutely had a, had a burden. And that was part of it is if we get, a, if we get additional capital, can we take a breath and can we get some of the additional support that we need in terms of tooling, uh, support resources, you know, the things that you would skimp on when you've only got, you know, $1, but thing costs two. Like for example, we, we didn't really have a finance organization. We didn't really have human resources. The facilities were below par to say the least. And it's like all this stuff takes its toll. Um, and so, yeah. What was the worst case scenario in your mind at the time? During that growth phase or during? Yeah. Yeah. When, when you're, when you're kind of putting the pressure on the sales guys, we got to deliver, we got to deliver, we need the cash from those sales to, to hit the, our, to pay our payroll. In fact, if that didn't happen, what, what would yeah. have happened? What was the worst case scenario in your mind? I mean, it's, so the, the flash talk story is a really positive story because we basically went in one direction and then it ended. Uh, the biggest fear for me was, was having to lay people off and, and having to tell a story that wasn't a great story to, you know, to winning becomes very addictive and each month achieving target and telling people you achieve target, the more you do that, the harder it is to think about and rationalize downturns. And because we were so dependent on marketing and marketing spend and emerging platforms, like these things are very dynamic. And so that was a real reality. And so there was, Number one is, you know, will the market winds change at some point? And these are the things that we're so dependent on that we don't really have any control to operationally. Are we being as effective as possible as a sales organization in terms of capturing those opportunities? And three, like, are we supporting our staff and team putting so much pressure on them? Are we giving them the support resources and tooling and all the infrastructure that they need to be most successful? Sort of all of these things just, just add to a tremendous amount of, of, of stress and pressure um, that, you know, at the time you wouldn't wish on anyone, but then when you step out of it after the business, you kind of miss it. <laughs> <laughs> the adrenaline rush of it all. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious to, I want to dig a little bit here because I, I think there are a lot of owners listening to this who, who share that sense of a burden yeah. that of, of hitting their number. Um, and, and I'm just, I'm trying to get at, you know, um, uh, you know, everyone kind of wins and loses. There's, you know, you got yeah. a bit of a chalkboard, you know, was lo what was it about losing, uh, having to lay people off, having to, to, to kind of go in front of the company and say, like, we didn't do it guys. And here's yeah. the, the ramifications. What, what was it about that? that yeah. Scared you this so, so, so much? It's, it's interesting. So when I, so I, I would say I was, I was a little, I wasn't a born entrepreneur. Like I started flash doc. I had, I had been working as a professional for, for 10 years. Um, 
And it's interesting when you start your own company, you are responsible for your outcome. Nobody else is responsible for your outcome. And, and that sounds really obvious, but the difference between doing that saying, I'm going to start a company, I'm going to, I'm going to get people to give me money so that I could start this idea. And then I'm going to hire people against my idea. That concept is very different than I'm going to go work for company X. So when things go badly at company X, people have a tendency to look for another job, blame their manager, blame the company, blame the culture, do all that stuff, but it, it's never your fault. But when it's your company and you're doing it all, I personally took failure much more personally and much more, much more severely than I would in any other scenario where the failures became my failures. If the culture is struggling, it's because of my, it's because of me and I'm not doing my job as effectively. And it became, um, the fear became very motivating, but it became very personal to me uh, to make sure that, that I am actually doing my best. And that's one of the best things about being an entrepreneur. It's, it's a true test of your ability. Um, I, I remember when I was in university, I, I took a computer science and math is a big part of that. It was the first time in my life, like I hit my intelligence threshold. Where I was like, <laughs> I, I'm, I took this theoretical math 300 course, no matter how hard I studied, I'm like, I could not do well in this course. And it was, I'm tapping out. That's it. It's like, <laughs> you, I got you, nothing. Kinda, you hit your ceiling and, and you, you, you realize it. And oh, it's a big eye opener. Startups are very similar where you're trying to do the best you can. And the outcome is really dependent on all of these things that you do and all of these activities you put in motion. And if you could be better, the company could be better. And it was, it, it's such a, like you're so in the moment and you're so alive and it's so dependent on your day-to-day -day decisions and, and how you interact with the team. It, it, it becomes like a very intense just from that perspective. Then the other piece is uh, depending on how you've structured the organization, you don't tend to hear a lot of good news. You start to hear more and more bad news. And so people, the it's all complaints. It's complaints from all different functions, all the things that are going wrong, all the reasons why uh, things aren't going to work. And, and, you, and, and you start absorbing that. And over time, it, it can take a real physical toll, especially if you don't have an outlet to sort of de-stress and, and get perspective and, and, and give yourself a little break from that. What impact did it have on you physically? Yeah, uh, a lot. Like I, I remember during the, at the time of sale. So when we, we started to talk about acquisition through the due diligence process, I, I physically lost 15 pounds. Um, I wasn't sleeping, uh, huge amounts of stress. There was friction in my household. I basically d disconnected from my social network because I was so focused on the deal and, you know, thinking about mental health and, it, you know, it, it's definitely a, a huge part of it is, is the endurance and, and the ability to endure a tremendous amount of stress uh, through a, an extended period of time can, can take a really, really sharp turn pretty quickly. Hmm. Yeah. Like I've always been big into fitness. And so my outlet was, was exercise. And when I, when I would get really stressed, I would go and, and exercise and come out of that feeling, feeling much better. But there were, I remember days like, and I, I, I put my gym in my garage in, in Toronto in the winter, which is really, really cold. And I, there were days where you just sit there in the freezing cold and just sort of stare at the floor and, and, think to yourself, like, how did I put myself in this situation? And like, how do I get out of it? And this desperate, this, the, 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 the monkey mind and the chatter that, that is created as a result of all these activities, if you, if you can't get a hold of it can be, uh, can be pretty, uh, pretty overwhelming. What would trigger the monkey mind? What, what sorts of things was it? Was it the sales sort of, uh, 
yeah, it could, you were on? It could, it could be anything. It could be, you know, someone on a, on a team complaining about another team member and you, and you start to kind of catastrophize from there. It could be, you know, overreading a market signal about something changing, a new competitor, a new competitor raising money. Like it kind of hits you from, from all of these different angles. And if you internalize that and you sort of take it home and, and you have no release, it, it really does build up and, and you have to be quite aware of it and cognizant of it. And, uh, you know, they say founders and entrepreneurs are a little crazy uh, and you, you kind of have to be because it's, it's not normal to be under that much pressure. And if you're not, if you're not ready for it, uh, it, it's going to surprise you. That's for sure. Would you do it again? Will I would do, do it. it I, I would do it again. It's, it's funny. Actually, I have this very strong memory during the due diligence period of the purchase sitting there in that garage, feeling so depleted and saying like, I'm never going to do this again, ever. Like I'm never going to do this again. And then a month after the deal closed, I want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you're an addict. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It's uh, there's an absolute addictive quality. It's the best thing in the world and it's the hardest thing, but usually the hardest things are the best things. So. Well said, let's get into the deal. So uh, you, you, you realize, look, I, we got to raise some money, give us a bit of a cushion. Uh, what was next? Did you hire some help? Did you go take it to market yourself? What was the yeah. So, so a couple, a couple of interesting things were happening. Um, so we, we talked to a bunch of banks, we talked to a lot of other non-dilutive funding sources and realized that none of those made sense for the type of business we were. So for example, bank loans in Canada for a growth startup that isn't uh, EBITDA positive, not going to happen. Uh, so venture was really the only thing. And you guys of, making money at this point? Can, we were cash flow positive. Because of the, the, the model, but, but yeah. EBITDA was... No, we were because we, right. we were constantly hiring. Yeah. Um, and so it's just not, a, not, not attractive from a, your typical financial institution. So venture was our, our, probably our, our best path. And I, because we had only raised from, from individual angels, I thought having an institutionalized board and professional board members would be a real, real benefit. So I was, I was really interested in that. Our company was growing very quickly. And the one thing I noticed is, you know, venture capital firms or private equity firms, they have basically a sales development function of a group of people that go out and try to identify companies that are growing that they can talk to because for them having access to the right deal is, is make or break. And so because of our growth and because we worked with a freelance network, our LinkedIn profile looked like we had huge employee growth relative right. to, to our crunch base stats on how much money we raised. And it was really, really attractive being in Canada. So we got tons of inbound interest from tier one um, venture firms, growth equity for all, all across the board that were interested in, in talking to us and interested in investing in flash stock. And so we kind of had, it was very early conversation, but we kind of had the pick we had the pick, like we weren't actively seeking. I had a pretty generic investor deck and just given our numbers and our growth and our market, it became very, very appealing in parallel to that. So I was never actively looking to sell as, as a sort of caveat. And there's some interesting learnings there for sure. Um, I knew that because I, I hadn't worked heavily in the creative space, I wanted to know the ecosystem as best as possible. So when we first launched, I reached out to different agencies, different uh, stock photo companies, different uh, content management systems, just so I could try to understand the ecosystem and the landscape. And inevitably you, you'll get in touch with the corporate development team. And 95% um, of those conversations don't go anywhere. And that, I do remember 
getting in touch with the corporate development person from, from Shutterstock in, in 2014. And we got along really well. He was a great guy. Um, I, we're still friends now. And I, I, he said to me right off the bat, it's like, hey, I think what you're doing is interesting, but we would never acquire you because your model is just so different than our model. And hmm. I, I, I'm like, okay, makes sense. But I'd love to stay in touch because you know, you, we're in the same industry. We're serving the same clients. So it's good to know each other. And they're based in New York. Shutterstock's based in New York. So then basically every you know, quarter or two quarters, I would be in New York for, for, for sales or customer meetings. I'd, and I'd grab a coffee with this, with this guy. And I'd, I'd explain our progress. And I'd say, you know, well, last time you talked to us, we were five people and with an idea. Now we're 10 people with you know, twice as many customers. Now we're 30 people. And it became this almost like natural diligence for them because they would, hmm. I'd give them updates on a regular cadence and they, and they track our business and see our business. And you know, the proof is in the pudding in terms of your progress. And so he was, you could tell he was getting more and more excited. Um, but I, I never, I never assumed that they would be an acquirer of us and I wasn't actively looking for acquisition. And we had a few other qualified inbound offered, not offers, but interest to have an acquisition conversation, but never really felt that the company was in a position to do that because we were just growing so quickly and so focused on uh, growth. And we actually didn't need the capital at all at that time. So then I remember it was the end of 2016 and we had just closed off our year in the sense that we hit our milestones, we hit our metrics and we were having like a big Christmas party and a big celebration. And then I had a conversation with that same, that same individual that I've been talking to for about two, three years. And I, I basically told them how we finished the year and I could sense the tone of the conversation change. And he said, we got to get you in here and, and meet the leadership team of Shutterstock. I was like, yeah, any, you know, anytime, let me know. I'd be happy to meet the team, sort of put the phone down and, and never really thought of it. So this was December of 2016. Um, and then in February, as we're now ramping up the, the roadshow for fundraising and for us, again, it was relatively easy because a lot of it was inbound. And so we were just scheduling in-person meetings for sort of February, March, as I was ramping up for that, getting the sales deck and the financials together. Um, Shutterstock reached out again and said, Hey, we'd love for you to come in and present, uh, present to the company and present Flashdoc and what you're doing. And, and, you know, to be honest, we are thinking about either a partnership or an acquisition. And because of our growth, I was so excited about the growth and potentially raising a big uh, venture check that I, it was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. It'd be a good experience, but you know, it's nothing more than that. So I, I, there wasn't a lot of internal pressure for me and, or no real desire. So I, I went to New York and their, their office, Shutterstock's office is, is in the Empire State Building, beautiful office, uh, very startup field. It felt really nice. And I presented to um, their management team, which was a pretty big team in a pretty big boardroom. And it, I had been giving the same presentation for, you know, three weeks. And so I knew it like the back of my hand and there was no mystery. And I, I noticed that the team wasn't overly engaged. And, and you know, when you give big presentations, you can usually tell by body language if the team is really, really into it. Sure. And uh, it just didn't feel that way. Like sort of key people were typing on their computer and I wasn't getting a lot of really deep questions. So I, I in the back of my mind, I just said, well, this is, this is kind of a waste of time. And I think the only one, the only question I got was, your Canadian company, you sell to us customers. What do you, how do you feel about currency exchange rates? I was like, I, I don't think about that at all. <laughs> yeah. That's the so far that's from my mind. Uh, and I remember leaving that meeting and, and chatting with um, 
the, the corp dev guy and saying, yeah, wow, that was a waste of time. He's like, no, 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 it wasn't. That's just, that's just, that's just how the team works. And so I didn't think anything of it. So I, I, I finished my other meetings in, in New York and I remember I got back to Toronto and um, he had emailed me and said, Hey, we, everyone loved your presentation, which I was surprised about. So we would love to come in. Uh, and meet your team and do a deep dive on all things Flashdoc. And I, I was really hesitant to do that because, because we're a relatively small company, you know, having this big player coming in and snooping around, like people are going to get massively distracted. And, and mm-hmm. because we were in the par- process of potentially raising money, continuing our momentum was very, very important. And so I said, I, you can come here, but you can only spend time with me. I, I don't want to distract the team. And, and they understood that. And so a team of two or three uh, this was kind of early February, flew in to Toronto. We went out for dinner and then spent a day, one day going through everything, going through the product, the financials, the future opportunity, the staffing, the unit economic, everything. And it was all relatively high level. Um, and again, I didn't think that much of it. It was basically the same stuff that I would show uh, an investor that was starting to get a bit serious. Um, but it was a good conversation. And then, so that was on a Tuesday or Wednesday in February. And then I, they went home. And on Friday at like 5.30, so I hadn't heard anything, I received um, an email from, from the senior person at, at Shutterstock with basically like a term sheet. Hmm. With, with a, pretty, a pretty, pretty wide range, but a range that was similar to the ranges that we've been chatting with our investors in terms of where they would ballpark our valuation. So I was like, oh, <laughs> very surprising, um, but definitely not insulting. Um, could be interesting. And serendipitously, I had been talking to uh, an investment banker who I got along with really well, who was, who was Canadian, uh, who... I was sort of probing them for to see how they could help if they could with a big financial raise from a venture firm. And they weren't interested. Um, but so they when we're not case, interested, no, they, they were more M and a larger okay. deal M and a, not really helping with the, the fundraising. And so when this deal came in sort of pinged them and said, Hey, random, but I just got this inbound term sheet. It's, it's interesting. Should we chat? And you know, we chatted and, he fully agreed that this was a qualified opportunity that should be worth pursuing. Um, and then we, you know, we engaged their services and they helped us through that process. Got it. So you had on that term sheet, it was an offer range as opposed to a, an actual number. Like, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think it's between X and Y. We think it's between X and Y. We think it's a, you know, it's, it's cash and stock, but we don't really know yet because we haven't done any diligence. But the thing that the thing that, that they're, the buyer is trying to secure at that point is is exclusivity on a deal. And so as part of that, there's an exclusivity period of, you know, 45, 90 days where you can't do anything else other than talk to this company. You, if another acquirer comes along, you're, you're contractually not obliged to have that conversation. And so there's a vested interest from them and there's a vested interest for you. And um, that, this is where the, the investment bank strategy became really, really interesting is, is how to play this and, and how, to, how this all plays out. Yeah. And what did, what did they suggest and what did they do? What strategy did they take? Yeah. So at the time we had two other suitors that were interested sort of kicking the tires, but not really serious. And so the other suitors were, were looking at making an investment or a full on acquisition, a full an acquisition. Okay. 
but very, very early, like, Hey, let's have coffee with the COO. You know, Hey, you're interesting. If you ever want to buy, you should sell, you should reach out to us. And so a big learning for me. So my instinct, when I got that letter was to respond and say, Hey, thanks. But we also have other competitors at the table up your offer. And, and the banker said, no, no, that that's the worst thing you can do. Because if you, if you play the competitive card too early, it could scare them away and think they're good. It's going to drive deal price up. You've got a banker, you're going to run a process and they're basically going to get squeezed out. So they'll just disengage. And so the play was basically sort of slow down, slow down Shutterstock and try to speed up the other companies hmm. and try to try to get to a place where you're getting three term sheets all at the same time. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. And uh, which is a really hard thing to do because, you know, move, getting big companies to move fast on anything is hard. Getting companies that want to move fast, getting them to slow down is also hard. So it sure. became this, it became this game of, um, you know, trying to speed people up and try to slow people down. But, but the, the process was simply telling the potential buyers like, Hey, if there's an opportunity to sell, if you want to sell, you have to do a bit more diligence to get to a fair valuation. Once you've done that, you can give us an educated offer and then we'll be in a better position to negotiate. And so that was, that was the first learning is, is how, when, how and when to use competitive pressure to, to move a deal around, deal around. Um, and so, so we tried to do that. Uh, in reality, we weren't able to get the term sheet for those other prospects prospective buyers. Uh, and, that, and that was a, a good learning for me is like, you know, like, like anything in life, it, it's, a, it's kind of a low probability event because there's so many things have to line up for a company to be acquired, uh, especially at that size. Like, so it has to be a, a, a strategic priority of that company. There has to be enough people there to manage a process because it is quite time consuming. You as a company have to have the right profile in the right market. The market dynamics have to be a certain way. And so to get all that stuff to line up and have three qualified offers at the same time is like such a low probability event. Um, mm -hmm. And because we weren't doing a fire sale, putting ourselves off to auction. Um, yeah. We, you couldn't really force it. People either wanted to be in that market or they didn't. And that was just a reality. So we, we, we sort of had that messaging back to Shutterstock say, Hey, thanks, but no, thanks. Super excited by your, this, this prospect, but go away and do some work. Like we'll, we'll tell you whatever you want to know, go and do some real diligence and come back with a more qualified offer. Because, and what was your justification? Because the, the, the offer they had provided was too big a range. You wanted a lockdown number or the, the, justific you... the justification was that you hadn't done any actual homework yet. Right. You guys all came to the meeting and you were typing type on your laptops. We haven't sent you any, you haven't done any diligence. Like you haven't even right, seen okay. our financials. You don't even seen our customer lists. Like you don't know, you don't know anything. So what are you basing this on? But we're, was, like, what was the risk in that in the sense that by revealing that information, weren't you potentially risking creating a competitor in Shutterstock or sharing some information that they could use against you? Not really. I mean, the, the thing that we always had is we were growing, we were growing very, very quickly. And so if things ever got contentious, we just say, Hey, we don't need to do this. Like talk to us in six months and you know, our valuation will be way higher. And so we never had that pressure. Whereas they, I, I can't speak for them, but my opinion, my impression of them was, you know, Hey, this thing's growing like a weed. There'll be a lot of people looking to acquire them. Let's lock this up as quickly as possible. And so we didn't, I didn't see any downside in terms of giving them a bit more information and slowing them down because we did have these other potential qualified uh, offers. And the reality is a term sheet isn't binding anyway. And so even if you signed it, they could go through all your stuff and walk away anyway. So there is no, there's no binding piece there. Okay. So what was next? 
So we, we, we couldn't get the other companies to do a term sheet at the time frame. So again, exclusivity was a big part of that. So you wanted to make sure that um, you were adhering to the exclusivity period because it does lock you up. So we got to the point where, um, you know, the Shutterstock team, great team, strong vision, aligned with our vision. The offer was, was, was fair on both sides of the table. And we thought it would be given how much we'd raised and the trajectory of the business. And we hadn't you know, taken a lot of money that it was just a good decision. So we had to sort of rally the jets and make sure that everyone was on the same page in terms of, should we do this deal or not? Um, and the answer was yes. Uh, and then that kicked off a 45 day diligence period, which was extremely challenging um, mentally and resource wise uh, to get to a, a, a definitive agreement to ultimately get to a, a, a signed share purchase agreement. Fantastic. Tell me what was going on with your investors during this time, because you had a few sort of friends and family, a couple of angels. What, what are, what's the kind of conversation with them like at this time? Yeah, it was, it was really interesting because, you know, people had different perspectives. So, you know, for them, like if you, if you're, if you're, an, if you're, if you're a serious investor, be it angel or institution, um, you know, you're looking for a disproportionate return on your winners, like having a three to five X return because you have so many losses in a diversified portfolio, isn't really going to do it for you. And so, a good chunk of the a good chunk of the investors were just happy to get money back in reality like i've been you're actually going to pay me back yeah and, and it's funny like there's a lot of especially on the and the angel side there's a lot of people that make really bad investments it's, it's really hard don't get me wrong but yeah. returning any money is fantastic because uh, a lot of them do it for other reasons than just financial they just want to be connected to the ecosystem and learn and so there was a group that was like this is awesome like do it congratulations and then there was another group they said, oh, you know, we think this could be bigger. We think you should keep going. We think that this should be a hundred X, not a, not a 10 X. Uh, and so for them, it was really around helping them understand what I saw as the opportunity, why I wanted to do it. What were the risks of going out and raising, you know, a big amount from an institution and then trying to sort of push the goalpost down even further. Uh, and so, yeah, it was an interesting, uh, interesting conversation. It, but in reality, for me, I had a really good conversation with a, an amazing angel investor. His name's Chris Burgrave. He was the ex-global CMO of Anheuser-Busch. And, he, and I said, Chris, I'm hearing conflicting information from, from investors. Half of them want this and, and half of them don't. What do you think? And he, he summed it up nicely. He said, he's like, Grant, will this transaction be life-changing for you? And I said, yeah. And he's like, do it. Don't feel bad. Do it. Get it done. Mm. He said, for me, this, this won't be. It's like, it's nice to get money back. Don't get me wrong, but this isn't going to change anything for me. So I would rather you go for the Grand Slam home run than sell now. But I appreciate that this will be life-changing for you and you don't pass those opportunities by. You just don't. Uh, and so for me, that, that meant a lot and uh, it was a big catalyst to the decision to do it. I'd imagine great advice. What what's the what's the economics on the on the deal? I understand uh, Shutterstock made it public. They're a big public company, a sixty five million dollar uh, uh, total price tag. Um, are you allowed to talk? Did they release kind of what your revenue was at the time? I'd be curious to know kind of what multiple yeah. of revenue. Do you, do you talk about that at all? No, they don't. They don't release any any information okay. like that, and any any business unit. So now we were a business unit of theirs. Um, I see. I see. They don't report at the business unit level. So got it. Got it. 
Got it. Um, why was diligence so hard? Could you? Yeah, I never really appreciated what it would entail because we weren't, I didn't think we were a big company. So I, didn't, I was like, we, we only have so much stuff to go through. Um, yeah. And people kept telling me, oh, get ready for, for this. And um, it, it, would be, it was really overwhelming. And, and, and things that you don't consider are um, sort of tax. Tax was a big thing. Um, all the different laws in Canada versus the US. And so, so a couple examples there. Um, like we had a few contractors in the U S that we were hiring and there was a risk that, um, the IRS in the U S would view, would view them as they should be full-time employees. And as a result, you're exposed. Uh, that's, that's one example. Another example is if a foreign entity is buying a Canadian company and that company is deemed as a cultural business, and it has to be approved by an MP in Ottawa. And so the, the next question is what, what's a cultural business? And right. So Canada deems a cultural business. That's any business that's creating original content in Canada. So they've actually blocked major trends. There was a, I think it was, it was a big hardware store that had a, an internal flyer that was part of Canadian culture. <laughs> so they blocked an acquisition because of it. So because we were creating content, oh, man. game of potential, but we didn't know any of this, but, um, the Shutterstock team had hired external legal counsel who were looking at all of this. And when you're under diligence, all you do is receive request after request after request after request for information. And because it's so time bounded, you have to provide all of this. And we were under resourced and it just felt like this con every time you thought you were finished, you'd say, Oh yeah, we just have a few more questions and you'd get this 80 point spreadsheet with <laughs> asking for all of these other things. And, and it's just, it, it never stopped for 45 days every day. It's just, and it's constantly poking holes in your, in your business. So if you think about it, when you get that term sheet and the initial commercial constructs, that's the maximum value that they will pay. And diligence is all about bring that value down and looking for all of the holes in your business to basically negotiate that down and down and down and down. And so it became, um, it became a very challenging thing because not only we were dealing with that, we wanted to keep the business running and we wanted to make sure that uh, it was executing and people were focused. And so we didn't tell there was only two or three people in the company that knew this was going on. Uh, our, our head of finance, our COO, no one else knew. And so we were, almost living these separate lives sort of sneaking into boardrooms and, and having these conversations with the fear of distracting because as you're going through the process, you know, the buyer is looking at your results. And so if your results don't meet what you had forecasted, it raises questions. It's like, why didn't you hit your sales forecast? What happened? And it just adds, that's the number one deal killer in all of these scenarios is you don't hit your numbers through the process and they get scared and they back away. So um, you're, you're constantly juggling these, these two things at the same time. And it's really challenging to context switch. Like for example, you know, there'll be a performance issue with an individual employee and you know, you're thinking about closing this huge deal and then you have to go to another meeting about this, this tiny little, what seems like a really small thing. Right. And it's, it's really hard to sort of jump back and forth. I should imagine. How did you handle their attempts at retrading, that negotiating a uh, lower price as a result of things they found in diligence? I found, I found uh, so we used an investment banker 
And because I had never gone through that and, and investment bankers aren't, aren't inexpensive. Um, they were very, very helpful in that process in terms of giving background, explaining the pros and cons of negotiation tactics and, and, and basically instructing what we should do and how we should handle it. And I found it an extremely valuable resource. And um, there were, there was instances in the negotiation where, you know, because of, because of a missed forecast, trying to bring the overall value down and then sort of push that value into future years into more of an earnout scenario. So it's like, hey, you're short on your forecast by 10%. We want to bring the deal size down 10%. But if you hit your, your number for the year, we'll pay you out as part of the earnout. And on, like logically, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, but then an investment banker would say, that's a terrible deal because as soon as you sign that paper, it's their company and you don't know what they're going to do with it. They could reorg and then you have no chance of hitting your number then. And so why would you be accountable for that? So it's, it's stuff like that that become, becomes really empowering from a negotiation perspective. And if you've never gone through it and you've never thought about it and you've never seen what happens post acquisition, you just don't even think about it. Like it's an unknown known. Uh, and so when, when they bring that to light and act as the bad cop in the negotiation, it, it's extremely valuable. And so we, we got more than our money's worth for, for what we paid with this investment bank. How did you handle the earnout piece? Was that oftentimes in these deals, they want to put it all in the future, entrepreneur yeah. wants it all up front? Yeah, they were actually really good about it. They, um, they recognized our growth. They recognized that they wanted to incent the, 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 sh the employees and the shareholders to get the deal done. And so they, they created a really, uh, a really seller-friendly agreement that was heavily incented on the performance side. Uh, and so they, they handled it well. And I think, you know, of all the, ho the horror stories that you hear out there, um, you, we weren't one of them. Um, I mean, execution is always something that, that's up for debate. But I think in terms of dynamics and structures, they, they did it quite favorably. I think w w where it gets messy is you have employees and you have shareholders and shareholders are not employees. And if the earnout becomes part of future value, that's really dependent on the employees, it can become quite messy because the shareholders are sort of waiting for this payment that they have no control over. It's always cleaner to have those negotiations as two separate things and say, let's talk about what we're going to pay the shareholders and then be done with it. And then let's talk about a structure that makes sense for the employees who are staying on and sort of break those two things up as opposed to negotiating them all together. And so that was also good learning uh, in terms of how the deal went through is, like, let's talk about this and then let's talk about that. Let's not talk about these things together. Right. So you separate it out. Okay. We've got shareholders that need to be paid for what's been created. Yeah. And then we've got employees that need to be incentivized for staying yeah. and, and, and future. Got it. Got it. What was life like after the sale? Yeah. So immediately, um, immediately after the deal, because they were a public company, it had to be disclosed through the SEC you had to get permission and then a, P a press release had to happen. And so you immediately got this wave of, of congratulations, which was amazing. Like the day, the day was exciting. Day one was exciting. You, you felt amazing. The team was super excited, like especially the, the team, because we had been, been so scrappy and we didn't have a lot of resources. It felt like we're finally going to get the support that we needed. Um, customers were excited because they now they knew we had the backing of a, of a tier one legitimate company. Um, and then, yeah, emotionally for, for me as the founder, it was something that you'd been building up in your head for, for, for decades. Uh, and then to have it actualize and 
be like, wow, this is changing my life was hugely emotional, hugely exciting, great for the family, great for the network. And, and one of those moments that you'll never forget and you'll look back on uh, favorably for sure. Where were you when the definitive share purchase agreement was actually physically signed? Yeah. So it, it was, so it was really interesting. So we, because we were growing really quickly, we wanted to shorten the exclusivity period as, as short as possible. And so I think, I think an average is about 90 days. Ours was about 45 days. And so That's great. it's a ton of work to do in 45 days. And so there was a ton of pressure on both sides. And so through that whole time, we were kind of working against this end goal of getting everything done, all the diligence done by a certain date. And so within the last sort of 48, 24 hours, it became clear on both sides that, yeah, this deal is going to get done. Like we haven't seen anything that isn't going to allow us to get this deal done. And so we had, we basically had written down a day of when this would all happen and work backwards in terms of what needs to be done. And so what needs to be done is you know, someone has to send the appropriate form to the SEC, a press release has to be written and sent out. Um, the, the, the employees need to be, told like all this stuff has to happen. And so you kind of create this project management schedule when you're doing the, the sec stuff, they close the office at 4 PM. And so it all has to be submitted by like three 30 or something. And so the day before it was supposed to close, um, we were talking to the Shutterstock team and they agreed that they were going to fly in that day and wait in a coffee shop. This is in Toronto, wait in a coffee shop around the corner <laughs> until everything's signed and then we'll, we will have a company update meeting and tell everyone as the press release is going out in the background that this is happening. Then the Shutterstock team is going to walk in and say, ha, ah, congratulations. <laughs> Surprise. So it was all like very orchestrated. However, there was a lot of work that needed to get done in that last uh, 24 hours. And so one of the things is, is a, uh, it's like a, there's the paperwork and the redlining that of course takes forever, but you're doing that ahead of time, assuming that nothing will go wrong. And so that work is generally done ahead of time. And then you've signed everything and they get uploaded into an escrow and it's not officially signed until all signatures are released through this escrow. So everything's been signed. There just has to be an agreement on both sides to release the signatures. But before everything needs to be released, everyone has to agree on everything. And one of the things that you have to agree on is this, it's a disclosure schedule, which basically lists everything in your company, every employee, every customer, every contract, all the accounts, everything. And it's, it's this huge file that takes, it takes a month to create. And if anything changes, like you sign a new client, it has to be updated because if that has to represent the immediate time of signature or it's no longer valid. And if you knowingly exclude something, it's, it, it's negligence and you obviously mm -hmm. can't. And so we're trying to run the course of business and deals are being closed and, and you know, their signatures forgotten. And so everyone's scrambling to get the sheet. And because as I had mentioned, the plan was it would be sent at around three 30, the, the press release would happen at four, the all hands, the, I would have a company up all hands at four o'clock. The Shutterstock team would like walk in from this coffee shop at 4 PM. So it was all orchestrated, but it never, it never played out that way because it was taking so long to update all of these disclosure sheets. And so it was around um, to sort of set the stage, big open office space, myself and our VP finance were sitting in this little office room, um, meeting room with no windows and a, and a conference call that was, we had the other legal team and the escrow on the line and everyone's frantically trying to get these disclosures in, in order. And it's sort of three fifty, three fifty five. I can hear, I can hear the company getting together 
for the all hands, like putting chairs together, you hear the, the background noise and that's literally happening outside of the door and everything's done. We're sort of waiting for their approval. It's, it's three fifty. it's three fifty five. it's four Oh five. So we're now past the deadline. Right. You don't hear anything. And then all of a sudden the, the escrow agent sort of patches on and says, okay, signatures have been uploaded. Deal's done. <laughs> it's a, and so I stand up and give my VP finance who's, who'd been working tirelessly for a month, like a huge hug. And we walk out and announce the deal to everyone. The, the company cheers. And then the Shutterstock team comes in and this is all within 30 minutes. And then because it's a press release, like my phone's blowing up and yeah, it was, it was an amazing, it was an amazing day. Amazing afternoon for sure. Wow. Yeah. Did you do anything to market? Did you buy yourself a trophy? Did you, was there some sort of physical momentum that you indulged in? There wasn't actually. And it was, uh, I kind of went the other way. Like I started to uh, recoil all that, all that luxurious commercial stuff. And I, I don't know why I, I still can't explain it, but uh, I, you know, I, I didn't do that. Uh, and I, I, maybe I will at some point in the future, but um, Yeah. No, everyone asked me that, but I didn't, I didn't go off and spend a bunch of money on something frivolous. So I uh, came back to work the next day and continued to do what I wanted to do. How did the, the emotional, uh, your emotional state sort of uh, continue as, as time passed? Yeah. So it was really odd. Um, obviously the, the buzz of the, of the deal and the congratulations continued for another month or so. Um, and a couple interesting things happened first, for, for about six to 12 months, like it, it and this is going to sound kind of horrible, but it, it sort of changed my perspective on what any individual can accomplish themselves. And so for me to have this idea, start a company, sell it and make, you know, make life-changing money and, and impact. And I, there's nothing special about me. I felt, I felt lucky that I had this realization that I can, you can literally do anything you want. And I felt a little bit of sadness to people who didn't like their jobs and realized that they could actually do whatever they want. They just haven't seen the light. Like I've seen it. And it almost, I created like this weird mental separation for me and what felt like a lot of other people. And, uh, it wasn't, I was better or worse. I just felt different. Um, and that's gone away now <laughs> completely, but that lasted for like six to 12 months where, um, I just had this clarity on, you can literally do anything you want. You just have to go out and do it and figure it out. And if you're not doing that, you should, there's something wrong. And so, so that was a little unsettling for a while. And then the other thing was it didn't, the, the finances and this act, everyone saying congratulations, it didn't make me happy. Like it didn't make me happy at all. And in fact, the realization that it didn't make me happy actually had a worse effect realizing that I've been trying, striving for this goal for my whole life, achieving it and not getting the happiness that I thought that it would give me was a real sort of kick in the stomach. And it's taken me, you know, a year, year and a half to recover from that. And I don't even know if I'm fully recovered from it. Uh, and now my, you know, the problems of working hard and paying the mortgage and saving your RSPs have been, re have been replaced with, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> What's the meaning of my life? All these ex existential questions that I never had before are now cropping up. And uh, yeah, it's all, it, it, it's very surprising and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's different than the other problems that I've had. Um, but it's, it's something I didn't consider. And it's something I implore anyone that's selling their business is to really think about why they started the business in the first place and realize that once you've sold it, that's gone. 
and it's no longer yours. And you can either start another company, which is really, really hard and a low probability event, or you can do something else, but recognize that you're no longer going to be the person that created this company and is running this company. You're going to be someone who's off to the side and, uh, you know, thinking if that's really what you want uh, and thinking about that beforehand, putting the money aside uh, is, is something that, that I wish I had thought about uh, more than I did. Hmm. As you think about it now, what have you found to be helpful to, to sort of manage through those periods of sense of loss or, or are, are there things you do, practices you have that get you through yeah. those periods? <clears throat> so, the, so the things that I've, I found really interesting for me is, is, is mindfulness. And so I'm, I'm, my family moved here from Scotland. Like any of that stuff, they are so, it's so foreign to them. But thinking of meditating and, and thinking about all the things that you never thought about is, is super important. So, so for me, a couple of things were um, it kind of forces you to think about what your purpose in life is for me was and what, what legacy that you want to leave. And so I was in a scenario where I, I started a business. I had a huge amount of success. A lot of that was driven by external forces that had nothing to do with me. And, you know, is this what you want to be known for, for the rest of your life? And is this, is this it? You don't need money. You don't need to work. What, what are you going to do? What is your purpose? And spending time meditating on that, thinking about it and thinking about it in context of your life and your family uh, and, and coming to a conclusion is something that's been really helpful. And, and so for me, what I've landed on is, um, having the ability to start a business and control your own destiny and create value is one of the most amazing things that you can do in a world. Not having to be dependent on someone else for your income and your livelihood is hugely empowering. And I have two beautiful young girls and I want to pass that gift on to them. I want them to understand that they can do that. And I want to give them some tools around how they do that. And so my purpose has shifted towards that. And now anything I think about doing in the future is if it helps me become a better entrepreneur, become a better business leader at the, and, and allows me to sort of codify that and systematize that in a way that I can pass that on to my kids. Super empowering. Anything else that has nothing to do with that. I don't want any time. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to waste any time thinking about it. I want to focus purely on that. And so working backwards from there, it's either getting involved in another business at a different stage or, or starting it again and being really thoughtful about how to do it and, and thinking about it and, and reflecting on it and capturing those thoughts and bringing my, my girls and family and into that and making sure that they're learning from that. It, it's forced me to have that level of, of, of discourse with them and also, you know, that level of internal thought on myself, which I never, ever had before. For me, it was always about getting the next big raise, getting the next big title, starting a company, signing the next big customer, getting an exit. Like it was never really that existential. I think your daughters are, have uh, a lot of fortune to have such a great old man. Well, we'll see. They're, 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 too, they're, too, they're too young for me to do much damage at this point. So I wouldn't mind uh, seeing where they're going to be in 30 years. Yeah. Let me know where I can invest. <laughs> yeah. uh, Grant, this has been just hugely valuable. I, uh, I am really grateful for both some of the tactical stuff you shared, which is really valuable, uh, but also just some of the emotional side, which is hard to talk about, but I think you did a beautiful job of just yeah. describing with great clarity. So I appreciate you. I think you've done a huge service to a lot of people today. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. 
Um, is there any, you know, you're going to have a thousand people <laughs> reaching out over whatever social media platform. Do you accept LinkedIn connections or yeah. is there a place where people can reach out and say hi? Absolutely. Uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, just search Grant Monroe and, and find my profile. And yeah, anyone out there that, that needs help, happy. I have time now, so please, <laughs> please reach out and uh, I'll do my best to, to give you some value, hopefully. Grant, thank you for doing this. Okay. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.